Wiki Freaks. Wiki Freaks. Yeah, it's Wiki Freaks. Hello. Hello. Uh, huh? You better work. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wiki Freaks. We're your hosts. I'm Joe Weider. I'm Connor Creekin. And we're here to read you Wikipedia.org. We're going to Wikipedia.org, the English English section. Or English. Uh, in, in the Enrique Iglesias section. <laughs> um, and yeah, we're just going to kind of click through things, learn something. You know, sometimes we're bored by articles. Sometimes we're charmed by them. Sometimes we're horrified. You get it all here at the WikiFreak studio. It's true. And then it is a studio. Let's, Let's sure. be absolutely. This is very professional. Absolutely. <laughs> that we are completely in a professional studio space. I am definitely not laying in bed with a mm-hmm. breakfast in bed tray and my laptop on it, drinking a glass of water in my and, Absolutely. And this will not cut out after 40 minutes because I haven't paid for the <laughs> premium <laughs> membership. <laughs> We're doing oh, it live, baby. We're doing it live, baby. Woo! But if you never, if you're joining us for the first time, welcome to our 124th episode. 124th episode. How about that? Wow. And we're uh, we just go to the the featured article of the day, the creme de la creme of Wikipedia articles, uh, and we just dive in. We dive right in, and we, you know, we just look around. Just kind of snoop around, sniff around. Mm-hmm. What's that? Oh, information, knowledge, A story. Yeah, knowledge. Mm-hmm. Well, Connor, well, I started last time, so uh, I believe it's your time to begin. Hot dog. All right. Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is... lucky me. Uh, actually, it's very good to reckon with this sort very of Very true. History. And it is Juneteenth, so it makes sense. You shouldn't shy away from this. Okay. So from today's featured article, we have the 1838 Jesuit slave sale. Oops. Okay. So... <laughs> The 1838 Jesuit slave sale was agreed to on June 19th when the Maryland province of the Society of Jesus entered into a contract to sell 272 slaves to Louisiana planters for $115,000. It sounds like something Jesus would do, don't you think? Uh, Yeah, certainly. (laughs) I mean, he was a slave, so was he? No. I don't think so. Maybe. I thought Jews were... Jews were enslaved by the uh, the Egyptians, but that wasn't the same. But they were the period. Romans, yeah. Right. Anyways, <laughs> so this this slave sale, this was the culmination of a long running debate among the Jesuits over whether to keep, sell, or manumit their slaves. Now I'm kind of disappointed in this article. I thought that the proper nomenclature for slaves is enslaved person. Well, I think this has changed. I mean, you know. Right. I think you can still say slave. I think <laughs> right, it's right. Uh, not good either way. Right. Uh, so in 1836, the Jesuit Superior General authorized the sale on three conditions. The slaves must be permitted to practice their Catholic faith. The families must not be separated. And the proceeds must only be used to support Jesuits in training. Huh. 
Uh, it soon became clear that the conditions had not been met. What? <laughs> the new owners separated families and did not allow most of the slaves to carry on their faith. Awesome. Uh, the Jesuits were only partially paid many years late. For humanitarian reasons, only 206 slaves were delivered. Oh, that's great. a what? That's an interesting sentence, <laughs> isn't yeah, it? For I, humanitarian reasons, only two. Okay. Alrighty. Many Jesuits were outraged by the sale, and the superior general removed the provincial superior for disobeying orders and promoting scandal, exiling him to Nice for several years. Wow. Well, damn. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, yeah. Is, I mean, it is reading these histories of, of you know, the slave trade there is a kind of irony that there there is often a lot of outrage about it but it's like so misdirected right, right? <laughs> they're like, like we'll oh, sell you human beings but they have to have the freedom to practice catholicism yeah like, it's, like, it's like hey you said 272 slaves and i only have counted 206 what yeah. the fuck is going on like, yeah wait a, wait a second um <laughs> But yeah, where does one go from here? My goodness. Well, let's see. I could go to Menumit. Menumit. I don't know what that is. So that was Menumit. Yeah. That perked my interest. Um, uh, niece. I could go to Nice. <laughs> right, right. I could also. I, either of those sound good to me. Honestly. Yeah. Maybe Manu Manumit. Yeah. Let's go there. Okay. Manumission. Okay. Manumission or enfranchisement is the act of freeing enslaved people by their enslavers. Well, that's good. Different approaches to manumission were developed, each specific to the time and place of a particular society. Historian Vereen Shepherd, Vereen Shepherd states that most widely used term is, is gratuitous manumission. What? That what? the most widely used term is gratuitous manumission, quote, the conferment of freedom on the enslaved by enslavers before the end of the slave system. Mm. All right. Um, the motivations for manumission were complex and varied. Firstly, it may present itself as a sentimental and benevolent gesture. One typical scenario was the freeing in the master's will of a devoted servant after long years of service. A trusted bailiff might be manumitted as a gesture of gratitude. For those working as agricultural laborers or in workshops, there was little likelihood of being so noticed. Such feelings of benevolence may have been of value to slave owners themselves as it allowed them to focus on, quote, humane, on a, quote, humane component in the human traffic of slavery. Ugh, this is so gross. Yeah. In general, it was more common for older slaves to be given freedom once they had reached the age at which they were beginning to be less useful. Legislation under the early Roman Empire put limits on the number of slaves that could be freed in wills, which suggests that it had been widely used. Wow. Freeing slaves could serve the pragmatic interests of the owner. The prospect of manumission worked as an incentive for slaves to be industrious and compliant. Right. Roman slaves were paid a wage, which they could save to buy themselves freedom. Manumission contracts found in some abundance in Delphi, Greece, specifically uh, in detail, uh, sorry, specify in detail the prerequisites for liberation. 
Manumission was not always charitable or altruistic. In one of the stories in Arabian Nights, in the Richard Francis Burton translation, a slave owner threatens to free his slave for lying to him. The slave says, quote, thou shall not manumit me, for I have no handicraft whereby to gain my living. Burton notes, quote, here the slave refuses to be set free and starve, for a master to do so without ample reason is held disgraceful. Yeah, that's, that's the, I feel like, uh, such an insidious aspect of, like, the slave system, at least in the United States, where, like, even freedom sometimes wasn't, like, was like you're free but nobody's gonna hire you for work yeah <laughs> yeah it's like, it's like good luck finding a job and right like good luck making the means and or finding a place to be because like society doesn't want you to live yeah it's just like it's just like total like mental torture yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> as well as carceral torture okay uh, well, this is kind of a, there's like some Greek moments happening. I know. Should we go through these? I mean, this is kind of interesting that to like kind of touch on the different yeah. slave systems. I can read about Greece a little bit. You want to read about Greece? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in ancient Greece, a history of ancient Greece explains that in the context of ancient Greece, a franchisement came in many forms. A master choosing to free his slave would most likely do so only, quote, at his death, specifying his desire in his will. In rare cases, slaves were able to earn enough money in their labor, were able to buy their own freedom, and were known as chorus oquantus. I guess that is really like, so if you're getting paid by your owner. Right. And then you just <laughs> give you them their money, money back. back. Yeah, and be like, okay, that's way. so fucking, it's just like, it's so, it's so like psychological warfare. You know yeah, what I mean? It's so what? like gaslighting or something. It feels so gross. Yeah, it's like it's like I guess I'll give you a refund since I'm not. <laughs> yes. uh, so two fourth century bankers, Passion and Formio, had been slaves before they bought their freedom. A slave could also be sold fictitiously to a sanctuary from where a god could enfranchise him. What the fuck? In very rare circumstances, the city could enfranchise a slave. A notable example is that Athens liberated everyone who was present at the Battle of Argonusai. Wow. Oh, okay. Even once a slave was freed, he was not generally permitted to become a citizen, but would become a medic. The master then became a prostatus. The former slave could be bound to some continuing duty to the master and was commonly required to live near the former master or, or the paramon. Uh, I'm I'm sure I'm mispronouncing all of these Greek terms, by the yeah. way. Uh, breaches of these conditions could lead to beatings, prosecution at law, and re-enslavement. Sometimes extra payments were specified by which a freed slave could liberate himself from such residual duties. However, ex-slaves were able to own property outright, and their children were free of all constraint. Oh, oh well, that's all good, right. I guess. Maybe just don't enslave people to begin with. I know. <laughs> Okay. Uh, should we go on to ancient Rome? Yeah, we could talk in Rome. Why not? Rome. Shall I read this? Yeah. Okay. Under Roman law, a slave had no personhood and was protected under law mainly as his or her master's property. In ancient Rome, a slave who had been manumitted was at libertius 
um, and a citizen. <laughs> citizen. The soft felt Pelios hat was a symbol of the freed slave and manumission. Oh, that's cute. The slaves were not allowed to wear them. Huh, so they, <laughs> so if you were a free slave, hat. you got a little fun hat. Congratulations. <laughs> Among the Romans, cap of felt was the emblem of liberty. When a slave obtained his freedom, he had his head shaved and wore instead of his hair an undyed Peleus. Um, hence the phrase servos ad Peleum vocare <laughs> is a summons to liberty by which slaves were frequently called upon to take up arms with a promise of liberty. Quote, the figure of liberty on some of the coins of Antonius Pius struck AD 145 holds this cap in their right hand. Huh. The cap was an attribute carried by Liber Libertas, <laughs> the Roman <laughs> god of freedom, who also, who also recognized by the rod, used ceremonially in the act of Manumissio Vindicta, Latin for freedom by the rod. Ooh, Ooh. I want some freedom by the rod. Don't throw at me with a good time. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, the master brought his slave before the magistratus and stated the grounds of the intended manumission. Quote, the lictor of the magistratus laid a rod on the head of the slave accompanied with certain formal words in which he declared that he was a free man. Ex jure criterium. <laughs> that is vindictavi de libertadatum. <laughs> the master in the meantime held the slave and after he had pronounced the words he turned him round and let him go <laughs> turn him, around, <laughs> no him round and let him go uh once the general name of the act of manumission the magistratus then declared him oh son of a free. bitch did you drop what was it your, what happened was it your, I, uh, your just, tray Spilled water on my little bed. Oh, my phone. no. Jeez uh, Louise. Oh, no. Okay. Do you need a moment? All right. Um, do you want to read A Freed Slave? Oh, yeah. I feel like I just read a lot. So, a freed slave customarily took the former owner's family name, which was the nomen, or sorry, nomen uh, <laughs> of the master's Jones. <laughs> the former owner became the patron patronus and the freed slave became a client and retained certain obligations to the former master who owed certain obligations in return. A freed slave could also acquire multiple patrons. Uh, a freed slave became a citizen. Not all citizens, however, held the same freedoms and privileges. In particular contrast, women could become citizens, but female Roman citizenship did not allow anywhere near the same protections, independence, or rights as men, either in the public or private spheres. In reflection of unwritten, yet strictly enforced contemporary social codes, women are legally prevented from participating in public and civic society. For example, through the illegality of women voting or holding public office. Wow. <laughs> The freed slave's rights were limited or defined by particular statutes. A freed male slave could become a civil servant, but not hold higher magistracies. See, for instance, apparitor and scriba, uh, serve as priests of the emperor, or hold any of the other highly respected public positions. If they were sharp at business, however, there were no social limits to the wealth that freedom could amass. 
Their children held, held full legal rights, but Roman society was stratified. Stratified. Famous Romans who were the sons of freed men include the Augustan poet Horace and the oh. second century emperor Pertinax. Wow. Uh, a notable character of Latin literature is Trimalchio, the ostentatiously nouveau riche freedman in the Satyricon by Petronius. Huh. Well... Well, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> how about that? Yeah, I'm kind of interested to hear in uh, Roman naming conventions. You want to go there? Let's do it. Maybe, yeah. Romeo, what are you eating, bub? You're so cute. I love you. Okay. Roman naming conventions. Over the course of some 14 centuries, the Romans and other peoples of Italy employed a system of nomenclature that differed from the that differed from that used by other cultures of Europe and the Mediterranean Sea, consisting of a combination of personal and family names. Although conventionally referred to as the trianomina, the combination of pranomen, nomen, and cognomen that have come to be regarded as the basic elements of the Roman name, in fact, represent a continuous process of development from at least the 7th century BC to the end of the 7th century AD. The names that developed as part of this system became a defining characteristic of Roman civilization. And although the system itself vanished during the early Middle Ages, the names themselves exerted a profound influence on the development of European naming practices, huh. and many continue to survive in modern languages. Wow. Wanna read the, the overview? The freaking Romans, man. The freaking Romans. Uh, yeah, I'll read that. Okay. <clears throat> ba, 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 ba. So the distinguishing feature of Roman nomenclature was the use of both personal names and regular surnames. Throughout Europe and the Mediterranean, other ancient civilizations distinguished individuals through the use of single personal names, usually dithematic in nature. Consisting of two distinct elements or themes, these names allowed for hundreds or even thousands of possible combinations. But a markedly different system of nomenclature arose in Italy, where the personal name was joined by a hereditary surname. Over time, this binomial system expanded to include additional names and designations. That's wild. Like, I never even thought about, like, where does first and last name come from? Right. <laughs> I always thought that, like, and this is a very basic understanding. I always thought it was, like, you're kind of, like, procession. You're, like, your profession. Your profession, right. Like, of Baker or, like, Miller. You were a and Miller. Like, right? And, like, child of. Right. So if you're, yeah, so it would be, like, johnson miller right <laughs> but whatever that's you know it's obviously more complicated well i think that was after this right so yes, yes. so the most important of these names was the nomen gentilicium <laughs> or simply nomen a hereditary <laughs> surname that identified a person as a member of a distinct gens this was preceded by the prenomen or forename, a personal name that served to distinguish between the different members of a family. For example, a Roman named Publius Lemonius might have sons named Publius, Lucius, and Gaius, Limonius. Okay. <laughs> Here, Lemonius is the nomen, 
identifying each person in the family as a member of the gens Lemonia. Publius, Lucius, and Gaius are praenomina used to distinguish between them. So like a first name, last name. Right. The origin of this binomial system is lost in prehistory. Oh, well. But I mean, it just kind of makes sense though, right? Like you can't have like five people named Erickson. Right. Maybe maybe that's how the cavemen did it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but it, it appears to have been established in Latium in Etruria by at least 650 BC. Wow. In form, the nomen was usually followed by affiliation, indicating the personal name of an individual's father and sometimes the name of the mother or other antecedents. Toward the end of the Roman Republic, this was followed by the name of a citizen's voting tribe. Lastly, these elements could be uh, followed by additional surnames or cognomena, which would be either personal or hereditary or a combination of both. Uh, Do you want to read more of this? Sure. Take it away. The Roman grammarians (laughs) (laughs) uh, came to regard the combination of preonomen, nomen, and cognomen as as a defining characteristic of Roman citizenship known as the tria nomina. However, although all three elements of the Roman name existed throughout most of Roman history, the concept of the tria nomina can be misleading because not all these names were required or used throughout the whole of Roman history. Hmm. Okay. During the period of the Roman Republic, the pre nomina and the nomen, the pre nomen and the nomen represented the essential elements of the name. The cognomen first appeared among the Roman aristocracy at the inception of the Republic, but was not widely used among the plebeians Mm. who made up the majority of the Roman people until the second century BC. Even then, not all Roman citizens bore cognomena. And until the end of the Republic, the cognomen was regarded as somewhat less than than an official name. By contrast, in imperial times, the cognomen became the principal distinguishing element of the Roman name. And although the prenomina never completely vanished, the essential elements of the Roman name from the second century onward were the nomen and cognomen. Huh. Do you think like, like it's like, you're like, how could like, like a part of a name become more important than another part of a name? You know what I mean? Yeah. You realize that this happens over like hundreds of years, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, hell, I mean. Well, I guess it was like the surname became the first name and then like the the clan name became the last name is that what they're saying like voting block yeah i just when it says by contrast in imperial times the cognomen became the principal distinguishing element of the roman name you know what i mean like 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 how how would that happen you know what i mean yeah it, it makes me think like oh yeah like my middle name would all of a sudden be more important than my first name well, I wonder if it's because people like the maybe because the imperial was that like when there were more wars and stuff, maybe people started going by last name because you know, yeah. like in the army, there was like you know, stiff, you know, last name, get your you know, get your head out of your ass, exactly. Yes, I, <laughs> that's what the army's like, right? Uh, yeah, last, hey, last name, last name, you're like, hey, Brown, hey, um, Milwaukee. <laughs> well, I guess I'm just thinking like this all happened so long ago yeah i'm like i'm like yeah who the hell knows like by 2622 like yeah 
what will be go like what, what we'll gaming conventions go by i'll be like oh hey what's up tiktok hey instagram right i'm like i'm like will our usernames be something? right oh what's up pony boy 69 <laughs> yeah exactly knoxville <laughs> chick 420 uh <laughs> anyway i digress okay um, naming conventions for women also varied from the classical concept of the tria nomina. Originally, Roman women shared the binomial nomenclature of men, but over time, the praenomen became less useful as a distinguishing element, and women's praenomina were gradually discarded or replaced by informal names. By the end of the Republic, the majority of Roman women either did not have or did not use praenomina. Most women were called by their nomen alone or by a combination of nomen and cognomen. Prenomina could still be given when necessary, as with a men's prenomina. The practice survived well into imperial times, but the proliferation of personal cognomina eventually rendered women's prenomina obsolete. Okay. In, the oh. later, <laughs> in the later empire, members of the Roman aristocracy used several different schemes of assuming and inheriting nomina and cognomina both to signify their rank and to indicate their family and social connections. Okay, so that makes, here we go. Mm -hmm. Some Romans came to be known by alternative names or signia, and due to lack of surviving epigraphic evidence, the full nomenclature of most Romans, even among the aristocracy, is seldom recorded. Thus, although the three types of names referred to as the tria nomina existed throughout Roman history, the period during which the majority of citizens possessed exactly three names was relatively brief. Nevertheless, because most of the important individuals during the best recorded periods of Roman history possessed all three names, the trio nomina remains the most familiar conception of the Roman name. For a variety of reasons, the <laughs> Roman <laughs> nomenclature system broke down in the centuries following the collapse of the imperial authority in the West. The prenomenon, prenomen, prenomen, had already become scarce in written sources during the fourth century. And by the fifth century, it was retained only by the most conservative elements of the old Roman aristocracy, such as Arali Simakchi. Over the course of the sixth century, as Roman institutions and social structures gradually fell away, the need to distinguish between nomina and cognomina likewise banished. By the end of the seventh century, the people of Italy and Western Europe had reverted to single names. Okay, where was I? By the end of the seventh century, the people of Italy and Western Europe had reverted to single names, but many of the names that had originated as part of the trio nomina were adapted to this usage and survived into modern times. Wow. Hmm. There it is. Still a little confused. Yeah, and the, all the, the nominas. <laughs> Monomena. It seems like nomina is the first name, cognomina is the second. Right. And then what's the, but then there's the, and then pre is what? The nickname? I, yeah. Well, <laughs> but see. all right, cool. Yeah. Why yeah, not? Sure. Why not? <laughs> we love it. Um, let's see. I could go to early Middle Ages. Ooh. I could go to uh, uh, ba, 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 voting tribe. Mm. or a naming convention well no let's get away from the names um or do you see anything else plebeians Ple oh plebeians should we go to plebeians let's go to the plebes come on plebes plebes 
better work. And <laughs> <laughs> when you were in high school, Jill, did did your friends and you like call people plebeians as like a joke? Because we did. I feel like yeah, that was kind of tossed around. I feel like lem- like lemmings was also kind of a lemmings. What are lemmings? They're like little. They're little uh, birds that kind of. I think they're birds. Birds. I think so. I think they're like guinea pigs. Oh. I think they're birds. What is a lemming? <laughs> I was right. They're little oh. robots. Oh, good. How about that? Good for you. Okay. Lemmings. That's funny. <laughs> kind of like calling people sheeple. Exactly. Um, okay, so in ancient Rome, the plebeians, also called the plebs, were the <laughs> yeah, right? Right? It's always that it's reaction. Like, ah, fucking plebs. Uh, were the general body of free Roman citizens who were not patricians as determined by the census, or in other words, commoners. Both classes were hereditary. Sometimes you're just born into it, you know? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. I'm going to skip etymology because who cares? Right. Uh, In ancient Rome, so here we are, in ancient Rome, in the analytic traditions of Livy and Dionysius, the distinction between patricians and plebeians was as old as Rome itself, instituted by Romulus's appointment of the first hundred senators whose descendants became the patriciate. Oh, I didn't know that. Modern hypotheses date the distinction, quote, anywhere from the regal period to the late 5th century BC. 19th century historian Barthold George Niebuhr believed plebeians were possibly foreigners immigrating from other parts of Italy. This hypothesis that plebeians were racially distinct from patricians, however, is not supported by the ancient evidence. See that? You gotta pay attention to the ancient evidence. That's true. Alternatively, the patriciate may have been defined by their monopolization of hereditary priesthoods that granted ex ex officio membership (laughs) in the Senate. Patricians also may have emerged from a nucleus of the rich religious leaders who formed themselves into a closed elite after accomplishing the expulsion of the kings. Fine. Um, Okay. Certain gents clans were patrician singled by their family names. In the early Republic, there are attested 43 clan names, of which 10 are plebeian, with 17 of uncertain status. A single clan also might have both patrician and plebeian branches, sharing a nomen distinguished by a cognomen. Here we go again. These cognomens. Uh, <laughs> there existed an aristocracy of wealthy families in the regal period, but, quote, a clear-cut distinction of birth does not seem to have become important before the foundation of the Republic. Uh, the literary sources hold that in the early Republic, plebeians were excluded from magistracies, religious colleges, and the Senate. These sources also hold that they are not permitted to know the laws by which they were governed. Oh, that's not nice. I don't like that. Um, However, some scholars doubt that patricians monopolized the magistracies of the early Republic as plebeian names appear in the lists of Roman magistrates back to the 5th century BC. It is likely that patricians over the course of the first half of the century or the first half of the 5th century were able to close off high political office from plebeians and exclude plebeians from permanent social integration through marriage. Yeah. Plebeians were enrolled in the curiae and the tribes, 
though they also or they also served in the army and also in army officer roles as tribuni militum. Huh. Like a military tribute, I guess. Yeah. Well, um... Hmm. <laughs> what's the expulsion of the king? Yeah, let's go there. This is... The name stuff is starting it's to... It just haunts mind. us. It haunts us. I can't escape it. Okay, the overthrow of the Roman monarchy. Here we go. This is what we're... Yeah, about. sack them. <laughs> the overthrow of the Roman mar- monarchy is an event in ancient Rome that took place between... 6th and 5th centuries BC, where a political revolution replaced then-existing Roman monarchy under Lucius Turquinus Superbus with the Republic. I wonder what he did. Um, The details of the event were largely forgotten by the Romans a few centuries later, but (laughs) (laughs) later later Roman historians invented a narrative of events traditionally dated to around 509 BC, but largely believed to be fictitious by modern scholars. Oh. So this is a made-up story? Is that what we're hearing? Well, it's- It happened, but- Happened, but everybody kind of forgot. And then, so they were like, well- I feel like this is how it went down. Okay. Their traditional narrative story involves a dynastic struggle in which the king's second son, Sextus Tarquininus, rapes a noblewoman, Lucretia. Oh. Upon revealing the assault to some Roman nobleman, she kills herself. Oh, no. The Roman nobleman, led by Lucius Junius Brutus, obtained the support of the Roman aristocracy and the people to expel the king and his family and, create, and, and, his family and create a republic. The Roman army, supporting Brutus, forces the king into exile. Despite a number of attempts by Lucius Tarquininus, superbus, superbus, <laughs> To reinstate the monarchy, the Roman people are successful in establishing a republic and thereafter elected two consuls annually to rule the city. Many modern scholars dismiss this narrative as fictitious. There does not exist, however, any concrete evidence for or against it. Mm. Various scholars have dismissed aspects of the traditional story from from the historicity of almost all of its major characters to the overthrow's entire existence. Damn, okay. Okay. I guess they used to believe women, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Typical, typical, typical. Yeah. Wow. Well? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Uh (laughs) Man, maybe a new rule is stay away from Roman history. I know. I thought this would be exciting, but it's kind of just like, yeah, some guys made up a story. We don't know if it's true or not. But this is kind of what happened. This is kind of what happened. Yeah. Hmm. Hum, hum, hum. Well, what do you think, Connor? Should we try to find it? I mean, is there anywhere we can go that's not going to be? I know. Yeah. So what is the legacy of the overthrow of the Roman monarchy? (laughs) Nice segue. It says here that the overthrow of the Roman monarchy has frequently been the subject of various literary and artistic works since ancient times. It also influenced later politicians and revolutionaries. So the role of Lucius Junius Brutus in the abolition of the kings was referenced by the public as part of a campaign to convince one of his descendants, Marcus Junius Brutus, to organize the assassination of Julius Caesar. Wow. 
How about that? During the French Revolution, images of both Lucius Brutus and Marcus Brutus, quote, were ubiquitous in Jacobin clubs, public buildings, and popular societies. Hmm. End quote. The stories of his overthrow of the kings, quote, embodied, embodied evolving ideals of civic virtue, and quote, the populace at large embraced Brutus as a heroic model of citizenship. That's cool. That is cool. Boys and whole towns were named after Brutus. Really? Okay. <laughs> the leaders. Fact. Uh, yeah. Uh, Brutusville, you know. Yeah. The leaders of the French Revolution, according to Mona Ozouf, drew on, quote, legendary antiquity to rise to the level of the events which they were living. Contemporaneously, in the debate over ratification of what would become the Constitution of the United States, the authors of the Federalist Papers signed with the pseudonym Publius, a reference to Publius Valerius Peplicola of the Livian narrative. Oh, okay. Should I read this last bit, or do you want to? Oh, sure. Uh, um, in the ancient world, that you, yeah. you, you want me to read it? Or do you want to read it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. In literature and the arts, in the ancient world, the playwright Lucius Exuius <laughs> composed a tragedy depicting the events of the overthrow titled Brutus, combined elements from Greek myth and tragic dram- dramas with the Roman story. Shakespeare's 1594 poem, Lucrece, quote, enjoyed immense acclaim when it first published, telling the story of Lucretia in a melodramatic rather, rather than narrative fashion. His play Macbeth also borrowed elements from the ancient stories of Tarquin's fall. Attilio Mastro Cinque argues Macduff, Malcolm, and Seward of Northumbria are models of, on Brutus, Lucretius, Calentius, and Poplicola. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite drink. Yeah, Poplicola is good. I love Poplicola. Um, Nathaniel Lee, an English play- playwright, dram- dramatized the story of Lucretia and the other throw of the Tarquins in the late t- 17th century play, Lucius Junius Brutus. Sorry, Lucius Junius Brutus. <laughs> Voltaire wrote a play, Brutus, dramatizing Lucius Junius Brutus's overthrow of Tarquin which while not immediately successful, became enormously popular in the 1790s during the French Revolution after the Mm. abolition of the French monarchy and establishment of a republic. Thomas Babington Macaulay also published a poetic telling of the expulsion in Lays of Ancient Rome, which was, quote, once extremely well known. The death of Lucretia and the death of Brutus's sons were also subject of many neoclassical paintings in the late 18th and 19th centuries. Wow. I didn't realize that like Brutus from Julius Caesar, like. Was like the guy. Was like a descendant of this other guy. Yeah. Right. Cause that's. Yeah. Lucius Junius Brutus. He's the guy who got overthrown. Right. No, I think he led the overthrow, no? Oh, yeah, sorry. A superbus was the guy who got overthrown. Right. Yes. Uh, So it's hereditary, their sacking of kings. Yeah, really? That's wild. Well? (laughs) Well? (laughs) Should we go somewhere else or should we wrap it up? We can wrap it up. I, I think we can wrap it up. This hasn't been the hottest episode. I have no, to. No, this has been kind of. Uh... <laughs> you know, they can't all be winners. But I, I, you know, I definitely learned something today. Yeah, I learned things. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. What did you learn, Jill? Well, I mean, I think, well, the hypocrisy, from starting with the Jesuit slave sale, I think just the hypocrisy and the uh, just complete blind spots of being like, yes, we are people of Jesus. Here, take these other people and buy and (laughs) sell them. I mean, obviously that's like, duh. Um, but just, you know, when you read about it, you it's a refreshing memory, not refreshing, but it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of re-emphasizes how horrible and how disgusting um, American history is. Um, <clears throat> so that's something. And then also just kind of, it was really interesting learning about kind of the, uh, how a, a freed slave in ancient times could kind of reintegrate into society. How, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't like, I don't know, like do you get to be a person again, kind of just uh, you can buy your own freedom. I don't know, there was just a lot, a lot of just the fact that society integrated that so seamlessly, I guess, into, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I, I think it, like what I <laughs> got from it is just how um, the people who hold power can be so clever about yes. keeping it yes yes <laughs> like they even when they're like we're freeing you they're not really right, right. And, um and just and just the the kind of design yeah like well, how power is designed to stay in the hands of a few yeah uh is like i'm very like and to see how it's so ancient you know, yes, that's the like, thing that really is just like, oh, this is like not a new. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like, how do we divest and redistribute power at all when it seems to be like part of our nature? <laughs> part of its definition is to be based on the exclusion and, and disenfranchisement of others. Like, can anybody right. be powerful without, without keeping somebody less Else, powerful? Yeah, exactly. That and then also is really striking to me just um, the way they would twist freeing a slave as being like a benevolent act that they're bestowing upon you. You know what I mean? Like, oh, thank you. Like, great, powerful one. You freed me from your own (laughs) transgression. Like, (laughs) why are you getting accolades for this as being some humanitarian soul? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a big question. Big question. You know, well, we tackled it here on Wikipedia. Yeah, I think we answered it. <laughs> I think so. We solved uh, We solved yeah. the history of slavery. So you're welcome. And on Juneteenth. I first. mean, God, just a couple of white people figuring it out. Thank God. Wow, we're yeah. really slaying this. Um, <laughs> we are slaying. <laughs> <laughs> um, Connor, where can people find you? Oh, you know, they can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Connor Cregan or at ConnorCregan.com. <laughs> C-O-L-M, is that right? Yes, C-O-W-L-M. Qualm. Qualm. Um, and yeah, what about you, Jill? Um, I'm at Twitter and Instagram at uh, Jill underscore lives. And also you can follow Wikifreaks there. And if you'd like to see Connor and I live, you can come to our show on June 30th Hello. at, at uh, Connor's going to be guest hosting Laugh Dance Saloon at Basic, 323 Graham Avenue in Waitsburg. So come check us out, will you? Woo! Woo! All right. Well, uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks, freaks. Enjoy your summer. Stay freaks, freaks.